Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks, Season 1, Episode 16. Fast Markets, Hashtag Lithium 19, Santiago. LCE meets LME. You'll be hearing shortly an interview that we did with Fast Markets at the last day of the conference before the site visit to SQM and Albemarle. And at the conclusion of that, I was planning to have Sound of Silence as the opening. And by great coincidence, while I was on the bus with uh, Ernie Ortiz of Lithium Royalty Corp, he had mentioned uh, when we were discussing this that, oh, for the NBA Finals, Volkswagen actually had a big advertisement called uh, the VWID Buzz, where Sound of Silence was that commercial that you just heard. So I used it, but uh, because you can't see it, at the very end of that, in the light of the Dieselgate scandal, they basically said, in the darkness, we found the light, introducing a new era of electric driving. So while the tenor of what you're about to hear uh, is more kind of hello darkness, my old friend, uh, this video uh, was something that uh, I want to um, actually give a shout out to David Gillum of uh, Masterminds in Sydney, who uh, sometime around uh, February, March, I remember I was in uh, Mexico on vacation and, and he wrote a piece calling about the second coming of lithium and uh, that he saw, I think, uh, later this year or into next year, but he said one of the major drivers that you'll see of it are when you see mass advertisements of consumer brands. So like this rollout by Volkswagen of this ad campaign, um, you know, gearing up for the mass uh, market car uh, is, is meaningful in my opinion. So something to be optimistic and lithium ion bullish about. Would also like to give a shout out to Albemarle and SQM uh, personnel, a great deal of personnel who all pulled off uh, a great site visit uh, to the Atacama with uh, some 80 people, and to the Fast Market staff uh, that pulled it all off. Congratulations, too, to the Toronto Raptors, who won uh, the sixth game and the NBA Finals, their first ever, beating the Golden State Warriors. And shout out to Constantine, the uh, chairman of Neolithium, who I think is the uh, biggest uh, Raptors fan I've ever seen. Shout out as well to RJ in Sydney, who won the t-shirt uh, in guest, uh, the, the prior guest, um, you know, Luke Kassam. And uh, also shout out to all the uh, 30 people or so who um, received and uh, took uh, tweet photos with their Lithium Ion Rocks swag. Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks. It is June 12th, Wednesday at five o'clock at the very end of the Fast Markets Conference. And I have with me... William Adams. John Melkai. From Fast Markets. And I'm here with Rodney, and we're gonna talk about three topics. One is first, just kind of takeaways after uh, three significant days and lots of information and a pretty well attended conference. Um, and two, William, Will Adams is going to talk about his presentation, which uh, was basically what most people care about, and that's a price forecast. And if you uh, listen to the uh, introductory music, you'll get a, 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 a sense for the um, dynamic uh, that, as, we, as we left here. And, and lastly, 
the uh, big news and congratulations to Fast Markets for being uh, appointed um, by the LME to to to, to formulate uh, a lithium price and and what all that means, you know, why they won and and, and what um, we take from here. So first, let's just uh, all four of us are just going to talk a little bit about our um, takeaways, you know, from the conference. So Will, we'll, why don't you start? Well, I think the my first takeaway is that the people are generally fairly downbeat on prices. Um, I think, you know, that's understandable. We've had a big supply response over the last 18 months or so. Um, so, and we've seen that reflected in prices. I think there's, my second one is that there needs to be more financings in the upstream market. Um, I think we, people are expecting more M&A activity also. And I think we're looking, um, we're seeing a lot of investment in the downstream market, but not enough in the upstream market. But I think those are sort of things we're going to be looking out for in the sort of months and quarters ahead. And I think there's another um, aspect was, you know, the OEMs are spending billions of dollars and euros, um, and the market's really waiting to see when that starts to flood into lithium demand. Yeah, and I think, you know, from a pricing perspective, personally, um, there's clearly an appetite in the market to evolve in terms of how people are looking at formulating contracts. And I think the announcement from the LME really will galvanize that interest as we move on. And just uh, back to you, uh, Will, in your previous statement, if you look at where the uh, incumbents are at the moment and all the commitments they've made in future projects and spending, who is going to drive M&A? Um, well, it's interesting. We saw the West Farmers coming in, and they were sort of from an outside. Um, but I think we will see more coming in from you know, the, the traditional um, Producers, so you know the South. I think we'll see more from the South South American producers coming in in time. Almoral is making major investments, right? And uh, they indicated on a recent podcast that maybe they consider some downstream in China, you know, as as part of the Wajna and Greenbushes. But I think they're otherwise constrained. Um, SQM is very busy with trying to figure out. I mean, they have financial means to do it, but uh, operational means, you know, they were in. Lithium Americas, so they, they, I don't know exactly the reason for them leaving that, but potentially managing multiple projects, you know, it was part of it. Um, and there's, uh, Ganfeng has made significant investments now with Bacadora if they're doing that, so that's two different countries that they're investing in. So I think they're constrained, Tangxi is constrained because they're trying to do a rights issue, and then Livet, you know, had a terrible quarter, and so I, I don't know if I agree in the short term that the five incumbents. Um, and then if you look a little bit beneath that, I mean, mineral resources, I can't see, they're, they're very kind of Western Australia focused, or Cobra theoretically could do something maybe small with the junior, um, but they have their expansion plan. So I, I, I'm hopeful that we have more West Farmers out there, and it makes mm -hmm. sense that West Farmers it makes sense that an Australian, because Australia was ahead, right, and kind of gets this, you know, in, in the Lithium Valley concept, that a, a blue chip like that would do that. I would be hopeful that a kind of European chemical or an American chemical company would kind of come in, and I think that should happen in a year or two, and it makes sense mm -hmm. for them to be a year or two behind. But it's to be to be seen. But today, actually, to talk about the big news on the North Vault, uh, 
you know, equity financing, uh, I'm, I'm tweeting about this, that, uh, that announcement, right, you know, the equity and the debt, uh, if you just replace Northvolt with XYZ Lithium Company, yep. right, that's what should happen, right? They piece together mm -hmm. debt, equity, there was some European support for it, and then there were a bunch of um, uh, strategics, you know, taking equity stakes. So, like, why couldn't converters, you know, why couldn't financing take place in, in, in that, you know, kind of way with Europeans recognizing, because we've talked about it, and again, Kassam mentioned you know, it's not a level playing field, right, in China. You know, Europe is obviously regulatorily doing things, but they got to get to kind of the upstream. Maybe there's, I think it'll happen. Um, I mean, I think you've got, a, you've got a market situation where you've got low prices, you've got low equity prices, and, there, I, you know, it, it might be quite foreign for OEMs to get involved in it, but I think there's, there, it, there could be some very good reasons for them to get involved, they would be, if they took equity in them, then they'd actually be locking in these low prices as well, as well as guaranteeing offtake. And I think that, you know, while we see there's a market in an oversupply situation at the moment for a good few years, we have, you know, further out, 2025 and onwards, we really do think we're going to be back in a situation where the market is getting very tight again. So I think that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, it's fairly... Uh, for the OEMs, five years is a very short space of time, I think. But I think, you know, it's going to take time for them to, to realize it. But now is probably the time where they should be getting involved. They should, um, but they have a lot of things to think about through their supply chain. And going all the way upstream is something like they haven't had to contemplate since, you know, Ford, you know, bought rubber plantations in Brazil, mm -hmm. Firestone tires. Yeah. So it, it's a challenge. And just, uh, you know... There were a lot of conflicting opinions over a lot of things, but the one thing I sort of felt was quite a clear takeaway uh, over the last few days is sort of preferred in the, in the future direction, certainly in the near term of cathode chemistry. Your, your guys' thoughts on that? Um, I mean, our view has been that the, the move to um, N NMC 811 is you know, it's happening, but it's going to take longer than people have generally expected. Um, what we have noticed this year and sort of since March is more interest and more involvement, I think, in, the, in some of the older technologies as well. Um, and I think that will, so um, LFP, so we think that will continue. Um, and that's quite an interesting, so that's sort of boosting some of the, the demand for some of the technical grades as well as, um, uh, as, well as you know, giving lithium uh, carbonate, also another sort of a boost as well. Um, but yeah, we, I, mean, I think long term, we think we will move towards 811. Um, and we also think that sort of uh, the NMC battery is going to be around for a long time. Yeah, so it certainly, you know, I agree. It seemed to me 532, 622, LFD, NCA, those are the you know, pretty much take the the lot, and then uh, you know we'll have to see on eight one one. But certainly for the next couple of years, I guess that looks promising for carbon, given it's really a price driven process. Uh, you know, in the six in the lithium agnostic six two two, you know, yeah. just go with cheaper carbon.
And as a result of that, that's why we, we're seeing sort of the lithium hydroxide prices, you know, are converging now um, more towards the carbonate prices. And we think that trend will continue. It's already come down a long way. We see that sort of coming down further as well, possibly even to, you know, parity. I mean, I've heard, you know, you always hear a lot of things here, but um, that there could potentially be some issues arising with some future hydroxide production, certainly the ones coming on in Oz. I hear different commentary, but, you know, I think if there were to be some success or achieving on time and on budget and ramps, that you could even have lithium heresy and having hydroxide going back to a discount job. Yeah, we've heard that as well, actually. I just think it's very interesting that, obviously, um, you know, investment in hydroxide, and there's been a lot of talk, particularly at this conference, actually, at the rate in which it's going to increase. And, you know, carbonate still remains the prevailing force. And, you know, from my point of view, personally, I don't see that changing um, anytime soon. But people have made the directional change. So... It is moving that way. But it, I think the, the kind of rate of progress that was kind of promised a few years ago isn't going to... Yeah, but I mean Actually, from a production commitment perspective. Yes, yeah. So now they've committed to producing hydroxide, but actually carbonate's the winner here for the next while. But they haven't, I mean, they've committed and they've committed, right? So we hear Quinana, train number one, 24,000 is kind of, you know, up and running, but, you know, not, it's not up and running, but it's late, right? And, and they may be hesitating on, you know, the second one until the first one is there, right? And... Albemarle talks about, you know, we'll bring on supply as the market demand is there. So it's, I'm not sold on the, um, uh, that carbonate's going to be higher than, than hydroxide, right? From what I'm hearing from the majors, and Roskill said it, and others said it, I think even in your forecast, you're still, are you forecasting um, uh, carbonate higher than hydroxide? Over uh, uh, we're actually forecasting it to come down to sort of parity. To parity, yeah. okay. So there's still, this is a debate that's in the market there. Like we heard from Albemarle, they think it's going to be a premium. We've heard from Roscoe, they think it's going to be a premium. Some other people think it's going to be parity, something's going to reverse. But sort of, we're talking in, in the period, in the next few years, we think it's sort of coming down to parity. But after, you know, well, I think once you get down, to, once we get that, sort of that stage where EVs become much more mainstream and we are using the sort of the, the higher, um, higher nickel batteries, and I think, you know, I think hydroxide prices is going to be in more demand. There will be more supply around as well. Um, but, you know, I think we also, because we think there's a, um, we're in a sort of surplus situation, I think there is that sort of um, flexibility at the moment. So if some of the hydroxide operations aren't being, are, are delayed, um, then you can, you know, the lithium will still be produced. It can just, you know, it can go where it is going at the moment and be converted into uh, carbonate if need be. I mean, within China, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, capacity, I think, for you know, converting from switching. Yes. switching yeah. Talk about Chile. So we're in Chile, we're in Santiago, and um, uh, the strategies of the major companies who are here, SQM and Albemarle, uh, are to have both carbonate and hydroxide. So they're hedging their bets. And yeah. the diversity of supply and diversity of the type, you know, they'll be prepared for either outcome, and I think that's pretty smart. Uh, what I will observe is that uh, those two majors uh, are here in, in a major presence, as was Tangxi. This was mm -hmm. a bit of a kind of coming out party for mm -hmm. Tangxi uh, as a sponsor, and Vivian Wu is here, and there was a whole entourage of Australian employees, um, you know, of, of Tangxi that I saw, and maybe a couple of other non-Australians.
Ganfeng. Not here is Livent, right? So Argentina focused Livent. I don't know what their excuse is. I understand Ganfeng had like an AGM, you know, so, but surely they could have sent somebody, right? You know, Ganfeng, we've talked about this. Uh, we're fans of Ganfeng. After the IPO, I wrote about it. Um, Rodney's written about it. But uh, the, the hope, like the very heavily discounted your Hong Kong exchange, but from a transparency and, and a, a voice perspective, like you get to hear Luke Kassam, you get to hear Paul Graves, right? You know, the, the music that I kind of started with, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, Sound of Silence, is, you know, is the Sound of Silence, you know, Ganfeng. Like, mm -hmm. what's up? They speak with, with actions, right? You know, and they're in back in Nora, but you don't get a chance to ask questions yeah. like I did of the Tangshi person, um, Emma, right, yeah. you know, in, in that panel, yeah. uh, as to, you know, in an industry starved for capital. We all agree. Everybody seems to agree they're starved for yeah. capital. But here's $4 billion going into SQM that will result in no additional supply. And there was no real answer to that. It was like a non-answer answer to that question because um, I truly believe this is, you know, remains a, a belt and road kind of security of supply transaction that, that you know, this is my opinion, mm -hmm. there's some title to my opinion, that ultimately um, China potentially sees, you know, a, 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 an ultimate takeover, right? Uh, and then it, they would direct, you know, the, the, the carbonate supply to China so then China could have a discounted, you know, source of supply and have a competitive advantage in electric vehicles. That's my opinion that, that behind this transaction. But you've also seen, as, just as much as you've seen sort of some of the South American producers diversifying into Australia and diversifying into hard rock, you know, it could equally be that Tianxi is diversifying into brine. But they're not. Right? If they were diversifying into brine to add supply, they could fund Lithium yep. Power International, or they could fund, like Ganfeng did, you know, an Argentine brine. It's $4 billion at a 50% premium. I don't buy it. Anyway, that's my soapbox. I'm not sure what that was to do with the takeaway from the conference. Well, that, no, there's quite a strong point. Don't sit on the fence yet. The takeaway about that is that this, is, this was very yeah. much a Tang Shi kind of coming out party, and I had an opportunity to interface with them, and I have a takeaway from that interface. Yeah. Okay? And that yeah. takeaway is, does not change my view. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we'll switch topics to some other takes. I think sustainability, uh, we had Ellen Lenny Pisagno on, on, on the program, and I thought her presentation was good, and that's an important, we're in Chile. It, but more, more than the sustainability aspect of it, I felt like Chile was kind of coming out, we're open for business. Well, it right? was transparency as well, wasn't it? You know, throughout the supply chain, I think that goes not only from sourcing, but all, also to investing in local communities, but also in actually pricing of itself, you know, there's been a lot of talk in terms of actually which price is the best used to a basis. The LME have come out and obviously partnered with us in terms of developing a benchmark. And I think that the whole industry is actually looking at various topics at the moment. And I think the key word is actually transparent. There's not a lot transparent about the Tangshi SQM transaction, to be honest. But I agree with you, transparency has was very much talked about, including by Vivian Wu. She talked all about exactly. transparency mm -hmm. um, in a, a very complicated to, to, to penetrate um, the presentation in, in my observation. But anyway, I, I don't mean to uh, to overly ding Tang Shi. 
Um, I think they're a good operator. They're a partner of Alcohol, and uh, they are a good operator. And, and it would be great, right, if they – I, I would love to see them invest in new supply mm -hmm. in juniors rather than do this because now they've levered up their balance sheet. No access to cash flow at the asset level, minority stake. And, you know, sort of hands-off directors. Mm. And, and I don't think SQM management is particularly happy with it there. I think it, it was just kind of like forced, you know, government-to-government -government, um, situation. But anyway, that, that's enough on Tangshi. today, which I think is uh, the security of supply. There weren't too many North American averages. If I think a difference between last year, last year, like there were site visits to Thacker Pass, there was no real talk about clay here. Back in Oro, it's also not here. Mm -hmm. This was like a major transaction. But it, it, again, it was chilly, it was brine, and that it makes sense. That's kind of where we are. But uh, just a, in observation, uh, Europe was here. And again, back to North Fulton, and you know, infinity and caliber um, had an opportunity to get to know a bit better. And Savannah were here as well. Yeah. You're right, Savannah was here as well. If you look at the imminent implementation of EU uh, CO2 emission standards and the penalties that are going to be slapped on, it's essentially, my understanding is it's put the, uh, the European OEMs in a position where they have to go to EVs because it's that expensive. Um, and that's kind of set... Uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of change the tone with, uh, on the one hand, you've had Chinese EV subsidy cuts, and now we have the thrust of, of you know, the EU emission standards. Um, the one thing I have a little bit of a question mark on, and I, I know that VW and Mercedes-Benz have come out and spoken about wanting to be carbon neutral in their delivery of EVs, but, you know, the um, the... Emission standards are captured on the showroom floor, just as a snapshot at that point in time. We haven't seen any sort of roadmap as to, you know, how do they assess or penalize or, you know, promote uh, the limiting of, of CO2 and GHG emissions from mine to showroom floor. That's been avoided. Yes, you know, VW is now moving into battery production with Northvolt in mm -hmm. Europe. The fact that they've taken, they've signed an MOU uh, to, to take a 10-year offtake from, from Ganfen, you know, in your mind, is that a sort of, um, is that a, you know, sort of an indication that they're likely to move up into cathodes quite soon? No, I'm not necessarily, I don't think, in my mind, I don't... Uh... Is that you think they're going to hand it to a cathode manufacturer and say, fine, there's the supply, that's locked price, that now factors into what you deliver to us? Yeah, I think that's, that's sort of the model, I think, yeah. Well, okay. we, we do know a lot of automotive, you know, across looking at their battery raw materials uh, and looking at actually directly sourcing those materials, um, you know, for the producers themselves. So yeah. I think that that's a model which is increasingly gaining practice. So are we talking about then saying, fine, I source nickel, manganese, cobalt, lithium, and I give it to you, and you get an operating, a processing margin. Effectively yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah, and I think, that's, I think that's the model at the moment, but, you know, in time it might well change. Um, but I think for now that's the sort of the model. 
Because we are seeing some back integration from LG Chem, et cetera, looking to do a bigger percentage of their own cathode. I mean, that's, that's happening. Yeah. Uh, I guess there are a lot of mouths to feed at the moment between spodumin, chemical, cathode, battery cell, battery pack, OEM. Yeah, and there's also a lot of raw material in which to acquire. You know, this isn't just lithium necessarily. We're looking across the whole battery material space. And, um, you know, as, as we mentioned briefly earlier, actually, the clarity of the supply chain and where you're sourcing your material from is very imperative to your um, and that's something they put huge onus on. And, and, and that, that raises the question, did they chase, uh, you know, NCM 811 because they wanted to thrift cobalt out the battery? They didn't want to have DRC cobalt. I, I personally don't think that that's too uh, overstepping the mark. I think that it definitely was a, a concern of theirs in terms of ethical sourcing. Yes but, to range, yes to energy efficiency, yeah. I get that, but they also but wanted also that underlying factor, yeah. Yeah, I think, they, I, mean, I think there is that sort of concern that, you know, cobalt could potentially be one of the, uh, the tighter metals again, not now, but down the road. Um, but I also think the energy density is a very important thing. Um, I think, you know, people want cars with long ranges. And I think that is, you know, that, was, that is certainly one of the reasons for the higher energy density to repress the, the need for those. Getting into, you know... People talking about wanting a long range, but the truth of it is, I mean, why in the world would we want a car with a thousand kilometer range? We're having EV charging stations put in. That, that's been, you know, one of the discussion points for a long time now. Can, can infrastructure actually support the way in which the EV market is moving? And I think there's a huge investment across Europe to, to fulfill that function. And I think that you will start to see that, you know, um, enough charging stations are made available for support. But we're not necessarily talking a thousand, you know, kilometers or miles. You're looking at sort of if you can get five hundred, you know, in in a, most cars, most EVs, you, that's that means you, you know, most people probably only have to then charge their car three or four times a month, yeah. Where and that certainly helps then if the infrastructure isn't very good because you can then you don't have to you know, recharge it every day. If you're there for you don't have to have a charging point at home necessarily. You can do it in car parks, you can do it at work. I guess, I guess sort of the angle where I'm, I'm going here is, to my mind, you know, in order to have mass EV penetration, you need cars being built in the 20 to 35,000 euro and dollar range. Now, to, to get a 500 kilometer range into that price segment, to my mind, doesn't make sense. The 500 kilometer is in the upper luxury sedan end, which is a fraction of. So, you know, so the question is, in order to achieve mass EV penetration, people are going to have to accept lower range vehicles because there's a price constraint. I agree. But you're also seeing from the automotives, you know, increased sharing of information, increased sharing of technology, um, because they want to drive up as well. And I think they're looking at the huge investments they're making across the industry, and actually they need to cut out costs as well in order to, you know, as you say, make it um, accessible for people to actually buy an electric vehicle car. Yeah, so we're getting the whole convergence of how do I make uh, an electric vehicle and not lose money, <laughs> but still achieve all of these things yeah. and, and, you know, and a supply chain survive? Yeah, and it's, you know, it, it's going through a massive change. But, you know, I think also an electric vehicle, once the economies of scale come through, should be a lot cheaper than a 
you know, a petrol. It's a lot simpler, a lot less moving parts. And therefore, you know, less components going into each vehicle. And therefore, that should have, you know, mean a, a cheaper car. And there are also some interesting things. I, I had a long, long conversation with Dan Blondel about, you know, effectively sell and pack improvements that can be made that have nothing to do with actually, you know, you can get a 25% gain or what have you without having changed anything in terms of the chemistry. So there is hope on that front, you know, in terms of improvements, I guess, to get us to where we need to be. We had a good chat with uh, Dan at Nano One and a couple of other uh, guests or speakers, uh, people that we've interacted with that I thought were um, a good takeaway. Uh, it was a great coup to get uh, Javier Martinez of Mar Morgan Stanley um, on that panel. So yes, that was very, it was uh, very interesting we, hearing him. <laughs> <laughs> we had a very nice dinner with him. I know him. I called him, uh, you know, the day after SQM invested in Lithium Americas four years ago and, and said, you need to understand this because you cover SQM. And I've had a good relationship, you know, with him for a time. Um, I still have a good relationship, but uh, in the interim, um, with his air supply you know, call last year, I poked him a little bit, but when I saw him, he said, yeah, I hope they don't throw tomatoes at me. <laughs> but he was, he was very, uh, it was riveting, you know, watching, like you could see everybody really paying attention to what he was saying. And when he was comparing, uh, when he was comparing the lithium market to chickens, to chickens and sugar, only supply mattered and demand didn't matter. If it was 750 or a million, I mean, a number of people after the fact were just, you know, questioning that. At the same time, the one significant investor at the conference, uh, Sailing Stone, right, who were the smartest investors in the space in early SQM years ago. Uh, currently, as I understand it, uh, are not holding any lithium stocks. So they've, they've but, but very knowledgeable, very interested in the medium to long term. So um, that the, the, those were good interactions. I found uh, Jingwen Sun um, from China Mint Metals, like a major. The conundrum here is just figuring out what's happening in China. And I, I spoke to him and I saw his presentation, which is exceptionally data rich. I need to kind of like download that and understand that. And but but figuring out what's happening in China is the biggest challenge in in this industry. It's extremely opaque. Uh, you know, and again going back to my, my question on Tangshi, I was hoping that they did they did the Hong Kong IPO because then they would at least be filings in English. Um, but it's they're not going that route. They're they're having to do the, the rights offerings. We didn't even describe your background a bit so or just like who you are um, what you each do for fast markets. You've been around for a very long time, and, and one takeaway was that you have a lot of people in China, right? You know, analyzing yep. this. So, the, the, why don't we talk about that and then the LB? Fast markets, as um, most people now know, uh, is the sort of the new brand of metal bulletin as it was, or industrial minerals. And the reason we changed, uh, had a brand name change, was as a price reporting agency, as a PRA, uh, we have bought other, uh, Metal Bulletin had bought other PRAs in other commodities, so in wood, paper, and pulp. So the sort of the Metal um, Bulletin name didn't really suit or fit anymore. So hence, that's sort of um, fast markets. But a fast markets is a, um, a part of Euro money institutional financial investors, um, and that is a $1.5 billion market cap, which is on, traded on the FTSE, um, it's part of the FTSE 250 on the London Stock Exchange. So we have a fairly global footprint with 13 offices around the world. Uh, we have a um, 
a team, a member, we have about um, a team of 370 people. We have 50 of those are Christ reporters in China. And then we also have the events team as well, um, which put on this event. And they put on about 50 events a year. Yeah, so personally, I work in the price development space. Uh, so I'm responsible for, we cover 5,000 different prices globally. And um, I'm responsible for essentially understanding the specifications associated with each of those prices and engaging with the physical market and ensuring those prices are used as a basis for negotiations. And also, as, as you've heard this week, working with the um, exchanges to ensure we can develop hedging projects uh, for the market. The LRB, what does it mean, why they pick you, and um, what are the next steps, and then also um, will you give a presentation on, on your price forecasts? Yep, so on the presentation we are, you know, we're bullish long term, but for the moment we do see we're in a situation of oversupply. I mean, we're bullish on the, the whole of the EV and energy storage systems, and I think the energy storage system is, is equally important. Um, obviously, it's coming off a low base. On, on the EV side, we're looking for sort of compound average growth rate of about 35% between now and that to 2025, and sort of a similar number, possibly even slightly higher on energy storage systems, but as I say, from a low base. Um, the other area, I think, is there's a lot of battery capacity out there, um, and I think so we're not worried about some of the downstream capacity. We think there is sufficient capacity. And because a lot of that is in China, um, we think, you know, in the years going forward, you know, there might well um, be excess capacity, um, which is often a case we see in China anyway, that there tends to be a lot of overcapacity there. So we're not worried about any bottlenecks on the sort of the downstream side. Um, as I say, we are worried longer term about the supply side. So as we see EVs, becoming more mainstream and as we see energy storage system building up as well we think you know the market's likely to move back into we think it's going to be in a surplus um, up until about 2024 and then moving back into a deficit a lot, lot there onwards um, and I think once we do start to see a bigger market and still growing at a very rapid rate the supply side the supply side is going to have a real um, tough time catching up and keeping up, um, especially that, that is the one area which is sort of probably the most time sensitive because it does take a lot of time to bring on new greenfield capacity. And I think that's, um, you know, that's something which we need to be aware of and sort of that's, you know, that, that's something we now look, need to um, be focused on is just see when and what is going to bring that sort of investment money into the upstream part. As I said earlier on, it, you know, maybe we'll see OEMs having to get involved. Um, we talked earlier on also about M&A, um, but it's, you know, there are some giant mining companies out there that haven't really got involved. That's another case. I don't think people are necessarily thinking that coming on anytime soon, but that, you know, we could have a, we could be surprised, I suppose. What's self-evident is that the market, the equities went up when the spot price went up. The equities went down because the, the spot price is going down. But even yourself, right, you, you're saying you're, you're bearish on pricing, you know, maybe until 2023, which is longer than most. But no, no, not if I could just butt in. I don't think we're bearish on prices until 2023. We're bearish on supply. Okay, I think the low price we think is going to be 2021. And then we're going to start anticipating the switch into 
a more deficit market. And that's if, and as the def, once we get into a deficit situation and the fact that the supply side might struggle, um, we think prices will start to anticipate that and start to move up. So our low price is 2021. And then from there onwards, we're looking for prices to start moving up okay. in anticipation. But you have oversupply until then. Yeah, we have oversupply, but our, our numbers are, we have oversupply as how we see sort of um, the likelihood of what production is going to come on stream. But if we have low prices, um, we might well see more um, producer restraints or stockpiling, as we've seen. Um, SQM said recently that they'll be producing 60,000 tonnes, but they'll be, you know, supplying to the market 45 to 50,000 tonnes. So, you know, that suggests the stockpiling. Is there, is there any uh, sort of chance that you know we could see an increased demand from a shift in you know the battery production etc. in non-China where they might hold bigger inventories and sort of run the, you know tight sort of inventory management which typically happens in China? I think you could see that, but I think the other side, as we get more battery and more downstream capacity being built, you need working stock. So that will also absorb some of this surplus as well. But it, you know, it's quite hard to sort of, I think these are sort of market factors which will move and that will change the sort of the, the, um, the actual end of the, the balance at the end. So yeah, I think I mean, what we, we, where we see the surplus is, you know, that's, our, that's on paper, but we think there will be market forces and, and other factors that will actually tweak that. And I think that, you know, the market won't be, it, it will be, although it will be in the surplus, there'll be, it won't be a surplus that really crashes prices. It's more of a structural surplus, yes. let's call it, than a... Yes, agree. The equities are following the prices in the short term, which makes no sense. I mean, it makes sense in traditional commodity markets, but in a, in a nascent, immature market like this, where there's so much unpredictability, you, you need to look at the M&A data points, right? So Albemarle is not making this huge investment if they think prices are going to be, as Morgan Stanley is suggesting, 7,500. It's just not possible. Well, actually, in fairness to him, he's forecasting mm -hmm. you know, that bottom in 2021 and then going up from there as well. So I don't want to like, over, you know, misrepresent uh, that forecast either. But uh, if you're a long-term investor, and most hedge funds are not, you know, and those are people who kind of came in hot money in 2017 and funded some of the projects. But, you know, in fairness, there were a lot of companies and the there's no institutional market in this sector like there is a traditional venture capital. There's no private market. There's no professional, the real professional investors and even the professional mining investors don't understand the chemical industry that is lithium. So the public markets are playing venture capital, right? So in venture capital, if you get one in 10 right, you're, you're doing well, right? So... 100 companies got some funding, and there's a week from Chafe happening now. I gave, if I can just give a plug for my own presentation, right? I, I wrote, and uh, thank you for, for putting me on that, you know, financing a project, uh, a lithium project panel, uh, where I, I used my uh, material girl, you know, like a virgin, um, you know, note, and just kind of augmented that I think, I feel like we're in lithium 3.0, right? Lithium 1.0, whatever, 2009. And then 2.0 was that 2017 period. And now in the week from Chafe, I don't think, you know, a rising tide, even if the price goes up, is going to lift all boats, right? The, the, the companies that have cash, realistic projects with that checklist of, you know, various uh, attributes, uh, you know, if they could survive this kind of downturn, but it, it could turn, 
it would be great if there were financial investors like sovereign wealth funds, like endowments, uh, like some mentality that's in Scandinavia uh, to uh, come to this market. But again, going back, does it need subsidy? Maybe, uh, but it would just be the impact investing. These people should understand that this is a bottleneck. That if we don't get the investment now, we're we're not going to, I think we have an 18 month window, 18 to 24 month window to actually get more of these projects financed. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't happen, then the EV penetration but, numbers are at risk. No, but I think, um, I think the money, if it doesn't come from traditional sources, it will have to come from the OEMs. So the OEMs are spending billions on, you know, making plants for electric vehicles, and therefore they will. You know, they will also realize that they need to invest. And I think I think we will see that. Tesla mentioned it in their AGM yesterday that they might get into mining. It's a big step there, isn't it? Isn't that part of the logic of why you would have an LME contract? Exactly. And if you could was, have a term structure, because then you can say, what is the price going to be in 2024 mm -hmm. or 2025? And a bank can hedge out a new operation. I mean, that's really, isn't that, wouldn't that assist in managing supply and demand? Exactly. I guess one of the, the key questions is actually what's, what's scaring off fire? Is it the lack of transparency in the market in terms of actually understanding a market price? Um, I think that that is possibly one of the factors, but also in terms of actually availability of risk management. And obviously there is a need for that to, to attract investment, to ensure the supply is there. Um, when, when the boom actually hits. I, I, I agree with you. The amount of money that's needed in this space is tiny in comparison to the other investments that they're going to make. And if they're making these investments, they're going to, within the next 18 to 24 months, you're going to see Volkswagen strike, stroking a check, which they're yeah. currently unwilling to do. They're just like figuring out the market and and we'll sort it out. One, I do want to talk a little bit more in, in, in detail on just the contract and what's next. Uh, but the one thing I'll say was not spoken about a lot here, which I think is is influencing the market, and is this, this whole U.S.-China trade uh, dispute, right, which is impacting the Chinese economy, and it's impacting demand for other commodities. And so, lithium, so I believe that the U.S. trade war, or whatever, discussion, negotiation, the, pro, the protractedness of it is affecting Chinese demand. It's not just the change of subsidies that's affecting Chinese demand. I have no data to, to back that up. It's just, you know, it wasn't discussed. I've asked one or two people about it and nobody really gave me a real answer, but I, I've got to believe it's, actually Anthony C, I, I did ask the question, Anthony C commented that um, liquidity of uh, the, the, the Chinese, they're working on the very short days inventory. Mm -hmm. uh, they just, if you work in hand mouth, and he also mentioned that like the DSO, that was bought, like took $300 million of liquidity, you know, out of the market. So the, the Chinese market, and you can see it, Tangxi and, 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 and Ganfeng, it's hard to raise money in, in China. So th this must be impacting it. So to the extent that we get a resolution, you know, it, it could be bullish. I think it is um, impacting in China, but I think it's actually impacting it probably, it's probably slowing down the supply side because there isn't so much money, you know, whether to buy the, buy the material to push through the converters. So that's, that's one area. So it could actually be, there's, I think it's positive and negative. Um, 
The, on the EV side, I think you've still got very strong EV sales. It'll be interesting, though, because one of the things we, we do look at, in, if you look at sort of compare 2017, 18, and, and 19, and you're looking at EV sales in China, you get generally, you've, you'd normally see month-on-month dips in July, which I think is just a seasonal factor. Last year, but most of the other time, after the sort of the, the Lunar New Year sort of period, if you take that out, um, you see month-on-month growth. And then last year, we saw a dip also in, in June. So we had dips in, um, in June and then July, and then it started taking off again. And we put that down to a subsidy, uh, to the, the, the effect of the once the full implementation of the subsidies. And this year, um, we've seen actually a dip in April. Um, but the, the March data was very strong. So I think there was just people who were anticipating the subsidy changes again, and they sort of bought, they bought more EVs. Um, ahead or in March for the subsidy change. So it'd be very interesting to see whether we now start to see picking up again once that sort of once the, the April dip has, has moved through. If we don't, then what you're saying on the um, the, the bigger impact of the slowdown in China um, is it could be having a, an impact on EV sales. And I think that would be yeah that would be quite a um, uh, quite a development. I think. Aren't we, aren't we seeing that in car sales in total? You know, totally. But, and I think that is, but that we're not talking, but if we're talking EVs, I think that the, the, um, the market, the EV is gaining market share so much that at the moment it it's, has generally not, it's not sort of cyclical, I don't think. So it's not been affected by the downturn, I don't think, because if people are buying cars, they tend to be pushed into, the, uh, into an EV. And for China, one of the re- the one of the big reasons is because it's a licensing place. So you know, as you know, if you if you want to buy a petrol car, you could be waiting two years to get a license a license plate. But if you're buying an EV, you get it in a couple of weeks. So I think that's a that's a huge incentive to um, to buy uh, EVs. But I, I guess the question then is, but surely even if you're switching to EV, shouldn't aggregate car sales not be plummeting? It's just you're buying an EV instead of a general cost. Um, no, but I agree that the part of the reason for the the, the the total vehicle sales is falling is because of you know the, the hardship in the in the hardship on the economy side. But I don't think that's necessarily. I don't think that's causing EV sales to fall. It might be slowing them down. Yeah, it, the growth rate of EVs could be even Higher. faster. Yes. Okay. So let's switch to the army contract, and um, then we'll conclude. Yeah, so obviously it was announced this week our partnership uh, with the London Metro Exchange to, to develop a lithium benchmark and uh, risk management tools associated with that. Um, I think that from our perspective, we're very happy to be working with the LME. Um, I think there were several factors uh, for why we were chosen in the partnership, uh, including, you know, we've been covering lithium at fast market for over 30 years in terms of pricing, so we've got a vast experience of covering these markets. Um, we've also you know, over the last two years in particular, seen a real uptake in terms of our prices being used in physical contracts. So a lot of actual major players now are using it as the basis for negotiations, which was a, a real sticking point, I think, in, uh, in getting us this contract. Um, I think there's several other factors as well in terms of our global reach. So obviously, you know, this, for example, is the 11th lithium supply market event, and we've had over 400 delegates here. So you guys know how well attended this event was. Um, I think that's a big pull for us. 
How does that compare? I'm just curious uh, as a data point. You know, it's in Santiago, so it, it was harder to get to, but at the same time, maybe it's a big industry in Chile, so maybe you had, you know, big Chilean representatives. Well, another takeaway was there was a lot of Spanish spoken in some of your presentations. <laughs> Spanish only. <Yeah. laughs> um, but there was uh, translation how, how do you, you know, over the last few years, is this 400 number higher or lower than previous years? I think it's in line with what we've been seeing. Obviously, what we're trying to do is, um, you know, gauge interest globally. So we will keep rotating these events. And we've got another event in September, uh, which is a battery raw materials event uh, based in Amsterdam. Um, so we expect roughly the same level of attendance there as well. Okay. So and continue. So what, what's next in the process for uh, the, I guess, the development of an index? Yeah, so I guess from our point of view, you know, we, as I say, we've been successful in engaging stakeholders throughout the supply chain, and we'll continue to work with um, every element of the supply chain to ensure we can develop a, a benchmark which is able to be used as a basis for negotiation. And that, that's an evolving project. Uh, as we've discussed, you know, throughout the process but, and throughout these conversations, the market's evolving at a very fast rate. Um, and as a result, we'll continue to provide the pricing mechanisms necessary facilitate trading. Um, in terms of our relationship with the LME, um, we'll look to develop a, a contract once we've established a benchmark. And you uh, already have a relationship with the LME for cobalt, right? Exactly, yeah. And any, any other metals? Uh, alumina, aluminium premium. So, so we have a, a long-standing relationship with the LME. Okay, and actually, you're remembering Illumina, you were talking to Will Adams uh, and uh, Ken Hoffman at McKinsey in his presentation or his discussion, having 30 years of history, trying to draw parallels. I think he made some parallel to steel sheets as well as um, Illumina. A garbage can. Garbage can, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when the aluminium contract was um, launched by the, in, by the LME in uh, 1979, it was the aluminium producers who wanted nothing to do with it, um, but now you know they they've embraced it with both hands, and it's you know it's a big contract, it's a very liquid contract, um, and it services the market well. Okay, great. So uh, I think we will conclude there. Those are uh, like all of our takeaways, um, but there was also one very significant thing that happened at this conference, and that was a lot of giveaways, and that was of our lithium ion rocks T-shirt. Uh, I wonder what, where you were going with this. <laughs> In Lithium Ion Rocks, Lithium Ion Bull, and through our respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have conviction, to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this or any other Lithium Ion Rocks or Lithium Ion Bull, that's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.